Lend Us Your Ears, a podcast by Bard in the Botanics. Episode 5, a marvellous convenient place for our rehearsal. How to put it together. Hi, I'm Gordon Barr. I'm the Artistic Director of Art in the Botanics. And I'm Jennifer Dick and I am the Associate Director. And this week we are continuing our Page to Stage series as we start to look at the process of rehearsing Bard in the Botanics. Um, and we're delighted to have joining us this week uh, two of our Associate Artist Actors, uh, Nicole Cooper and Robert Elkin. Nicole has been seen recently on our stages in roles such as Hamlet. Coriolanus, Timon of Athens, uh, Portia in The Merchant of Venice, Beatrice in Much Ado About Nothing, and Cleopatra, and many, many more. Uh, while Rob has been seen by audiences recently as Richard III, uh, Richard II. Uh, he's also played Touchstone in As You Like It, uh, Bertram, a male version of Beatrice, uh, Viola in Twelfth Night, uh, and again, many, many more. So, Rob and Nick, welcome to uh, the podcast. Welcome to Lend Us Your Ears. So the first question we want to ask you about rehearsals is actually kind of before rehearsals begin. So what do you do between accepting roles of Bard in the Botanics and starting rehearsing for them? <laughs> <laughs> nothing. Nothing. Clearly. Clearly nothing. <laughs> um, good start. So... I suppose the first thing we do is I I do when you send us the script is to read the scripts. Always read the scripts before the first day. Is that acting one on one? Nick, a hard learned lesson. <laughs> <laughs> I tried it once without reading the script, and I was just talking nonsense. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Um, Actually, talking about the scripts because. We talked a lot about the that we edit and you know create our versions of the text. Do you read the original play, the full text of the play, or do you wait to get Bard's version? I think it's similar to what Carrie said actually in the other episode. Was that I, I used to, but now I don't really see any point. <laughs> <laughs> Almost because it'll just it just messes my brain up. Really, it just means that I'd be coming into rehearsals with knowledge that I don't really need. Or not even knowledge, just stuff in there. Distractions, Distractions. yeah, exactly. So, no, I, I always kind of wait till I get your versions and go from there. I think I'm more or less the same. I, I never used to. I always would just be happy with whatever you sent. That was the script and that was my working script. And I would just go from there. And I didn't want any of the, the baggage that comes with having a preconceived idea of what the show should be. or Because our shows are so unique in that respect. But then I found myself... Last year, because you and I, Gordon, were working on the Hamlet script together, I was much more familiar with not just one version of Hamlet, all the different folio versions of Hamlet, and just so I had different reference points because we were we were creating a script, sort of. Yeah, we were kind of shaping our Hamlet together. Yeah, yeah. So I was the first time I was really aware of the differences, and in terms of my prep. For rehearsals, yeah, I agree with Rob. Always read the script before you come to work on day one. I mean, this is comforting for us. It's good to know. <laughs> I'm glad that happens. Do you know what I've... No, I'm not going to say that. Well, um, <laughs> no, I was going to say, I, I, I'm pretty sure I have done jobs, not with you guys, but where you have the read-through and you're like, you 
have never read the script before today. I, I have been aware. And this is a good warning for actors out there. I can tell on the first day of rehearsals if you haven't read the script and because it's completely different to someone with dyslexia or someone who you know struggles a little bit with sight reading that's Mm. a completely different thing and i can tell the difference so this is a warning to actors out there read the script before you come to rehearsals you you can also tell the people that have only read their scenes (laughs) (laughs) and actually don't have a clue what the rest of the play is about they gasp at a plot development (laughs) he dies he dies (laughs) What? I get married? When? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I also, because we, we generally, we're getting the scripts a lot later now as opposed to, no, what's the word? Sooner or later? Earlier? Earlier. Hello. Um, <laughs> we're, we're getting the scripts earlier, I think, now. But I, I read my script every day on the run-up to starting rehearsal. So the good month that I've had it beforehand, I will read it every single day. That's sometimes really tiring, depending on how uh, involved yeah, the script is. I was going to say. Yeah, but I just, that's how I think I, I think I've learned over the last few years that we we have such limited time in rehearsals, which we'll probably come to at some point. And if you can, if you can get rid of the questions of, especially with Shakespeare, when you've got so many references to mythology or the planets or the classical references that you kind of go if I just know what those are I understand the backstory I understand the sun god or whatever it is the reference and the do your homework do all of that because you don't have time in rehearsals to really sit and discuss which god of the sun we're talking about do you know what I mean yeah so yeah I mean I'll try as much as I can to read it every day uh, or at least to read it I'll start and then if I get so far the next day I'll carry on where I left off but yeah and that's how I think I learn my lines quite quickly because by the time we get into the space you just know it so well I'm already really familiar with it I have a similar process when I'm editing a script which is that every day I go back to it I have to go back and reread from the beginning so every time I'm just getting a firmer grasp on what the journey of the script is so I do that every single time every single day I'm working on the editing I always go back to the beginning and read up to the bit the bit where I stopped just to make sure that I have made all the right choices so I'm reading and reading and reading so I think it's you end up similar. really familiar with the first scene of the play. <laughs> yeah. yeah, still surprised by the ending. I think I found that easier to do last year, or more beneficial to do last year, because with Hamlet, she had the majority of the long speeches, and so I was able to kind of go right. I can isolate this speech and read it and work on it and read it and work on it, knowing that I'm not going to really be affected or affecting anyone else on the stage. Whereas with scenes, when there are other people involved, yeah, you read them, but you're, I'm, I'm always aware of not making any choices. So even though I'm reading it every day, I'm trying not to fall into a rhythm of how I'm reading. Because I read it out loud. Do you know what I mean? Not to yeah, fall but... into a pattern that is then going to be stuck in my brain. And yeah. then you come into rehearsals and go, oh, oh, okay, they're doing it this way. Right, that changes everything. Because again, we don't have time to backtrack a lot. To unpick yeah, something yeah. that somebody has really embedded themselves yeah. in. Yeah, I mean, it's why we, we talk about we, we never ask actors we never ask actors to learn their lines before the start of rehearsals. If people, if that's how people are going to manage a three-week rehearsal period, then fine. But as long as they try and do it, and it must be so hard for to try to try and learn lines as neutrally as possible, so that it's just the words. You kind of changed your process over the time that you've worked with us for learning lines, haven't you, Rob? 
Yeah, I think it, I used to find learning lines a lot easier when I was younger, definitely. And as I've got older and as, and I guess as, as the parts have got bigger as well, especially if you're doing a kibble show, these parts that, that you're handling are massive. So I've kind of developed this system of you know, like... It's like acronyms, isn't it? It's acronyms, yeah, initials. So I will go through the whole of my, all of my lines and I'll write the first letter of every word and I'll include the punctuation that you've put in the script and I'll include the line breaks. Then I'll write the cue for my next line and then I'll write the initials of all my lines. And it means that I, when I come to learn the lines during the rehearsal process, it keeps me on track with precision. It means that I might recognise, I might realise that, oh, there's loads of S's, there's loads of F's, there's loads of a certain sound in there, there's loads of alliteration or whatever. It's a useful technique just in in the, the language of it but it also helps me yeah, learn you, the lines as you say with accuracy when you're used to looking at the shape of a line and then you've learned it and you missed a word out you kind of you feel the trip yeah yeah you absolutely. feel that word missing absolutely where do the two of you stand on watching other versions of the plays that you're about to do because i think i think we've discussed it on the podcast that i because i have an absolute horror of once i know i'm going to be doing something i can't watch someone else's version because i'm afraid i'm just gonna steal which i know shouldn't be a fear because they do say great artists just steal but i so i immediately stop and i'm wondering if the two what your approach is will you watch because they're very famous plays and there's lots of versions of them Will you watch someone else's version when you know you're going to be playing that part? I have done in the past when it's been a, a play that I didn't know very well or I wasn't terribly familiar with. So kind of as a almost like a shorthand of getting to know the story. Yeah, yeah. Be again, because there's only so so much value that you can have in that because our scripts here tend to be adaptations or you've maybe got a character that's been amalgamated from a few different ones, especially if it's a kibble show. So... That's useful up to a point, but ultimately, for me, it always comes back to I'm going to get a working script and that's going to be my main source of focus and that's where I'm going to draw all my clues from. And so, yeah, sometimes I, I, I nearly got carried away watching all the different Hamlets that have ever been, but none of them were women. So it was never going to be something that I could accurately compare a storyline to. I could kind of go, okay, they did that with the rhythm of the speech or okay, they broke up that bit or they put that speech there instead of there. But in terms of but who they were as a human yeah, being. Yeah, it's always or... going to come from me. So, the, yeah, it, I don't see the... It, it's as an it's an interesting exercise just to see it. If you're enjoying the play, to just go, yeah, I want to watch a few of those and remind myself what it is. But I don't think I've ever used it as a kind of like, hmm, what can I have from this that's going to be <laughs> what useful? Shall I steal? What, would I, what would I like to... How have they hit that I want to hit that or whatever? How about you? Yeah, I'm exactly the same. I think there are some plays that I've used as, as an in, like you say, just to kind of get the the story into my head but actually I've no interest in seeing what other people have done really because because like you say what we're going to go through on it is going to be a completely different journey and we're going to I'm going to find my own interpretation of the character my own understanding of the lines I'm going to do all of that myself I don't need somebody else to kind of show me what they did really so no I wouldn't avoid it as such but I just don't really feel the urge to I wouldn't read the script as many times as you Nick absolutely not <laughs> I mean, sometimes I probably got better do. things to do with I your just, life. Yeah, I'm just way too busy. Um, I, and I kind of realised that I've developed a bit of a system of reading it, I'm going to say like three times before the first day. And But I read it really slowly. Uh, so the first time I'll just read it through and highlight my lines, having carefully selected what colour highlighter. 
I'm gonna That's use. so important. That's so important. <gasps> oh, I forgot that both of you genuinely. The colour is crucial. Yeah. And absolutely the timing crucial. of the when. Like, once you've highlighted, that's it. You're involved. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like you can't you can't go back on that. No and if you it. highlight it in the wrong colour, then the God, character... Oh, I wrong. once asked my daughter... Well, she's, she asked to help, and I reluctantly let her, and then I just watched her messing the whole job up, and I had to reprint the whole thing. Because I was like, no, I can't. I can't have my script looking that badly highlighted. But it's a weird thing. I do understand it. Like, if you're looking at the script and... Your lines have been highlighted in a colour that doesn't connect to your character. It's so silly, but yeah. it's so totally stupid. That is yeah. so stupid. I, I don't get that, but then I have just as weird a thing because I always use the same colour and it has to be that colour, mm. which is I always highlight my lines in yellow and the three words of, of my cue are in pink. And that's, I have done every script like that, I think maybe for like 20 five years and it will never be it's different how you that is, those that you, is. You, i mean you had the hardest job ever all but was it about eight different characters you played in macbeth in macbeth yeah and they each had different characters they each had different colors you know there were that many different colors of highlighter <laughs> yeah and especially but then there was <laughs> there was some that that i was like well this is the witch being that character but there's a flavor of witch so <laughs> I'm going to highlight it purple, but I'm also going to put a green line underneath. It was, yeah, I mean, it's ludicrous. That would, it wouldn't help anybody else, but it, it helped me. Um, but you said yeah. you, you read your script three times. Yeah. So the first time is read through just, just for reading its sake and highlighting my lines. Then the second time is much slower with a copy of the first folio. And that's a really small, that's a really slow process of reading it word for word, word for word, just to pick up on those, the capital letters and all the punctuation. That doesn't mean anything and it, it can look completely different to the script I've got in front of me, but it's an opportunity to read it word for word and consider every word and every choice and to consider every choice that yeah you, Gordon and Jen, have made with the, those punctuations to kind of go, oh, that was a clear choice. What does that mean? Right, great, moving on. That's also the point when I would uh, do my homework on any words or phrases that I didn't understand. I'd make sure that I did all of that. Any pronunciations, I'd do at that point. And then the third pass is just to read all of my lines out loud, solidly and clearly, so that when I go in for the read-through, I've done it. I've said everything. There's nothing that's going to stumble me. I understand everything that I'm saying. I understand why I'm, maybe not exactly why I'm saying it, but I understand what I mean by it. And yeah, for me, that's the most important thing to make sure that I know what I'm saying mm. before I go in on that first day. Yes, so. the why, the why kind of comes in rehearsals yeah. and in that dialogue between yourself as an actor, us as director, between your dialogue between yourselves and other actors as the relationship between the characters develop, the why becomes that that's what rehearsals are for. Yeah. In a sense. Exactly. But we don't have time, like you're saying, to, to waste time on definitions. That's your work. That's my work to do before mm. I get into the room, I think. Mm. Unless there's there's something we can easily have a question mark on it and that can be something we discuss in the rehearsal process. But if it's just a definition of a word, I, I have to do that work. So having done all of that work, you then get to first day of rehearsals, day kicking off. So do you want to talk a little bit about what rehearsals are like at in the Botanics? <laughs> I love them. It's really exhausting, but I always find it really thrilling and an engaging experience. Um, I think we're very fortunate because obviously we're doing it again and again, year after year, if we're lucky enough to be asked back. But it's always quite fun to have people who've never experienced it before in the company because you can just watch them slowly going, 
wait, hold on. <laughs> we're doing this here. <laughs> like, yeah. Yes, we're doing it here. And yes, there is a kids play park literally over there. But that's just the way it goes. I find it a really, a really cool way of working. You have to be willing to make strong choices, but also be willing to throw them out the window the following week. I think week one and week two is always really different for me. I always go into week one knowing that I'm probably going to make all the wrong choices. And then week two, you're like, okay, I don't have time to try all the different options. I just need to figure out why that one is wrong and figure out what the right one is. So you have to be quick. But I, I kind of like, I've had, I've now had rehearsal periods that are longer and I've been like, what are we doing? Why are we still talking about this? Come on, oh, let's oh, go, yeah, let's absolutely. do this. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd love, I'd love an extra week. Oh, I'd take an extra, an extra week. week. Oh, but the material is so rich. It's so rich. And I think our productions are so detailed that you could just make endless decisions and it could go on and on and on and on. And you then get to a point where you start to unthink and unfeel everything that you've been working on. And that does sometimes happen. You come sometimes get to week three and just go, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't like any of the choices I'm making. <laughs> but Is that when you have to hope that we are going to say no? It's normally around about that We're time where you. I go, can I, uh, can we have a little chat? <laughs> <laughs> Why just... am I so bad? <laughs> yes. I'm a terrible actor. Can you please fire me? <laughs> I always no, have a little moment can't. where I check into it. You guys, you, you good? This is all you're happy with what's happening? <laughs> And as long as you're happy, then I'm happy. Yeah, no, I, I just, it's hard to describe the weirdness of working in this environment other than I find it a really exciting thing. It can be super difficult. Do you think what's what's the most weird about it is the rehearsing outdoors in a public space or is it trying to get your head around Hamlet in three weeks or is it a little bit of both of those and other things as well? I mean, I guess it's the public space because you are you don't have the freedom to just focus on your character in that moment you kind of always have to be modulating your choice to work outdoors or to to work in a space for example we know that you can't sit down for too long in a kibble show do you know what i mean yeah. you have to you have to be you have to be making choices based very specifically on the environment you're going to be working on which you maybe wouldn't have to do in a sort of tra- traditional indoor theater so yeah the i think the wrapping your head around being outdoors is probably one of the most difficult elements of rehearsing there's just distractions isn't there and there's things that are happening and yeah it's hard to feel focused and it's also hard to figure out how to pitch a moment that you desperately want to do in an intimate way for 350 people yeah yeah you know there's there's all again the material's so beautiful and rich and that's the difference i think between working in a kibble and working outdoors is that you you maybe have to sacrifice sometimes some of those smaller choices i think what's interesting is you know, with both of you guys, you've been working with us for more than 10 years now, both of you. And I think you you are two of the, the actors that we work with who have found ways to keep that intimacy outdoors. They are, you're so experienced at it now that you can... I was, yeah, I was uh, really worried for Hamlet about whether or not I would be able to play her the way I wanted to on the bigger scale that you needed. And it worked so much better than I had imagined. But I think it is. It's our experience that helps us to kind of go, okay... You can hear when an audience are with you. You can hear that sort of 
quality of silence mm. and, and focus. Yeah, even outdoors you can hear it. Yeah, absolutely. you can absolutely hear it. You well, can even feel more it. so outdoors because, yeah. Yeah. well, you, you can... perhaps notice the other more outdoors because it's as we said earlier on in the podcast, there are so many other distractions. There are things that you become much more interested in your picnic or what's happening down on Great Western Road if the show isn't holding you. So you can become more aware, I think, when you're performing if the audience is distracted in that way. Yeah. I think you've just given me a little epiphany, which I'm going to say just so that I remember it, which is that I think one of the reasons that what we do works is what you're talking about is an inability to be indulgent because you have to constantly consider the audience in both of the spaces, the outdoor and the kibble, it means that you're always aware of playing for an audience and rather than indulgently going, That's I'm going to play this true. emotional moment just for me. That's totally yeah, true. absolutely. I want to say this for myself. I've decided I want to do this with this line. You can't. Primarily, yeah, the audience have to hear everything. And then the rest follows. I do maintain, I think, in the right circumstances, when you've got them in that sweet spot... I think you can whisper. No, absolutely. I That's what I mean. Like, can. You can feel it and you can hear it. And when you know that you've got them, then you can bring it right down. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy because you have this wonderful big lawn of 300 odd people, but you can feel like, I guess we're maybe going into the performance and we're supposed yeah, to be sticking to rehearsals. That's all um, right. But you can definitely feel when they're with you. Those, yeah, you probably get like goosebumps and you can, those are the bits that I think feed an actor. Those moments where you know that you're, you've got them and they've got you and it's all, everything's falling into place. And you can really feel that, I think, in the outdoor space, as well as the kibble, but I think the outdoor is a harder one to, to kind of... Wrangle. Them. Yeah, wrangle, that's a perfect word. I, I think it's it's a mixture of an element of magic that, that happens, but then an, an element of technical mm. knowledge of the space, like you were saying, having done it, having worked with you guys for so long. I remember there was a moment in Twelfth Night, right at the start, when Viola's talking about the shipwreck, and I was stood on the like the far right-hand side of the stage. And it was my first entrance, and I somehow had to get the, all, the whole audience into, into Viola's world and what she was going through. In a moment that's quite internal for her. It's really internal and small, and, and or, you know, the goal would be to play it quite small. You don't, she's not running into the room screaming for the, to the mountains. And I just worked out really quickly that, well, she can see the shipwreck happening, across the ocean and the the ship can be in front of me and then it can move over to one side and before I've finished one line I've painted the picture for the whole audience and I've pulled them all in and once I've done that I can pull them back to where I am and just carry on and that's just a really technical thing that once you get through once you've done it job's done it is those technical things that that I find I have to teach new actors it's that thing of just the way that you hold your body you can't be very kind of Chekhovian and naturalistic naturalistic and overly naturalistic facing each other you have to turn your body out to the audience because you need to make the sound travel that way and just I remember Esme Bailey who's an actress who's worked with us a few times will be familiar who was in that Twelfth Night I remember the moment that she realised and it was watching you Rob rehearsing with Ryan doing Viola and Olivia which is quite an intimate scene but you were playing it at opposite sides of the stage both with your bodies facing out and she was watching and went and she said to me oh I understand I get it this is they're playing this for all of that intimacy that you two were just talking about but they're 12 feet apart and they're facing out to the audience Um, and once actors realize that I think then they can do both enough to bring in the whole 350 people but play that intimacy and I think that that's something that's quite important to 
Barton the Botanics. There, there are other outdoor shaped beers that I have seen in my life that overplay that sense of everything has to go out mm-hmm. to the audience. Mm-hmm. And it takes it too big, too broad, mm-hmm. too... Yeah. It's a particular style and it loses, for me, humanity and truth. And it becomes a bit declamatory. People doing their Shakespeare acting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that somehow (laughs) we've evolved a style. And that's what's great about having actors like yourselves uh, as associate artists who have worked with us year and year and year. You, You have helped us develop this style that the playing of it feels naturalistic, but technically is really quite complex. Yeah, I wonder if that's a lot to do with the fact that the shows are chosen for their sort of relevancy of the moment you know we tend to do things what maybe Othello was the last one that we did in like full-on period costume yeah that was Um, 2013 yeah and so because we're making things fit in a contemporary world I think you tend to maybe try and balance out a more naturalistic looking people on stage and the the relationship they have with each other yes if you're dressed in clothes that you would wear every day but you're suddenly doing this massive declamatory yeah it doesn't it doesn't work does it who is that person what is that yeah I think I also find our rehearsal process really collaborative which I, I think is really it, it never feels like you guys have come with a kind of like a this is exactly how this show is going to work out <laughs> but it always feels like we have a starting point where we're like we're going to build this together and yeah there is obviously towards the end of maybe week two where you guys are done with all the ideas <laughs> you're like okay thank you thank you for your thoughts <laughs> thank you now no more options yeah. I will decide what's happening yeah but yeah, it feels collaborative and it feels yeah. um, it's one of my similar to what Susie and, and uh, Sam were saying in the last podcast about feeling like you have uh, an, impa- an impact and an input into the creative process. We obviously do because we're there, but, but it also feels like some of the decision making is, is in our hands as well, which is really nice. That is absolutely true. And I think Gordon and I would both say we want to work with actors who are up for being involved in that sort of process, Mm. who are going to bring something to the table rather than expecting to be spoon-fed, kind of, this is how I want you, the character, to be. I want actors who are going to create. I think maybe it's because we've both acted. I know Gordon has done it less less than I have. Would we say acted for me? (laughs) Um, I've been on a stage... A very a, long time ago. A play at Barton the Botanics. I've, I've been in more than one play at Barton the Botanics and very rarely by choice. Um, <laughs> that's a story for another day. Uh, one of my favourite things about <laughs> rehearsals, it's always that moment when Gordon has to, can only work out what he wants to do by stepping into the world. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I swear I never used to do that. It's become more and more over the years, but I do. I'm like Joey and friends. I have to get into my map. It's so funny. We all see him doing it. Oh, Gordon's disappeared. Where is he? Oh, he's on the stage. Okay. But it does, it helps me to know if I'm stood here on the stage and I need to get you, I need to get this character out of the way for whatever practical reason. If I'm there and I can stand where they are, I can understand better. And I do, I kind of have to act it out a little bit in my wee head. I love it, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to don't need to defend yourself to me, Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> Just need to only act in a own wee head. I'm now sitting in horror of what directorial tics everyone is now aware of. That You're both I am so not aware different. of you so are both different. so different. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I used to think I had a really good poker face. And what made you think that? I don't. I don't know. I did think. I used to think that, and then I remember there was one show. I I'm not going to name it, but 
towards the end of rehearsals, very close, like two days before we opened. And we had a, a quite bad full run through of the thing. And I was tearing my hair out internally, but trying to be, okay, this is where we are. This is what we're going to do. We're going to have a lunch break. Then we're going to have a line run. We're going to try again. And I just remember Kara saying, oh, Nick came round uh, and said the run was awful and Jen's tearing her hair out. And I thought, oh, I, I, I clearly... I said that. Yeah, you had said that to Kara. Now it down. Mm, which <laughs> way? Mm. <laughs> Yeah, no, um, yeah, no. You don't have a poker face. I don't know what made you think you did. I don't. I'm sorry. Because <laughs> well, I always I think... try and be encouraging, even if I'm internally going, "We're never going to be ready." I have. To, I try and be encouraging, because I'm not sure there's any use in me going. Well, this is a disaster. What are we going to do? <laughs> we laugh a lot during rehearsals, don't we? It's, a lot, it's a lot. yeah. Considering that sometimes the material is so difficult and, and yeah. heavy and emotionally draining, there is always a lot of laughter around. And yeah, I think there is just again, it's the collaborative thing, but it's it's a lot of fun in the rehearsal rooms. It's the same thing I was saying with Sam and Susan last week's episode to quote. The great Dame Judy Dench, because why wouldn't one? Mm. You take the work seriously, you don't take yourself serious. Yeah, mm. yeah. That's how we stop ourselves from going crazy when you're trying to do a show in three weeks and then trying to do another show in the next three weeks while performing the first show yeah. in the evening. And that, that structure, when you're rehearsing outdoors for the second show especially, and you're knackered because mm-hmm. you're not leaving work till 11pm every night, coming back in at 10am the next morning. But you're you're also got part of your brain. And then I think it's the same for you guys as actors as it is for me. If, if you're rehearsing outdoors, part of your head is watching what the clouds are doing overhead while yeah, you're still yeah, trying yeah. to give your all to the rehearsal yeah. to know whether you're going to perform that night. Absolutely. And that's exa- that's that is exhausting. When you're when you've just opened the first show of the season and you're rehearsing the second show, but you've not quite opened the first show because it's been a bit wet maybe or you've not been able to get a full run through or you lost the dress rehearsal and but you've already now's the time to be moving your head into a different place it is exhausting but to find humor and release at any point in the day that you can just oh relieves that pressure yeah it's absolutely my favorite bit i love rehearsals rehearsals are my favorite part of my job and it is because of the laughs Mm. i never laugh as hard as i do in a rehearsal room and at the stupidest silliest things and you always come up with lots of little show specific catchphrases and jokes that come out of rehearsals that just they just make me so happy i love it it's my favorite time <laughs> the robo moments in, in richard the third in richard the third last year when um when the princes were coming were coming to london and lady anne had the line why with some little d- a little train. There is some little train, Lord Buckingham. <laughs> and Adam, Adam, who was playing Buckingham, had pointed out that it just sounded like Lady Anne was <laughs> obsessed with trains. Why are they only getting a little train? Why not a big train for them? Yeah, why not a big train? Why with some little train? <laughs> and I swear, like, every performance that went through right through to performances and I just couldn't I just couldn't listen to that line those are the horrible bits when you get when you get a joke that becomes part of our our sort of folklore of bard yeah yeah, in performance when you come up to that line it's always hard because you have to stay look out to the trees (laughs) (laughs) was it in Julius Caesar where somebody had the line about how somebody nobly bears something as it bears it nobly in a noble way but it became the nobly bear they were like, 
cousins to the gummy bears. <laughs> yeah. Ah, all, here come the noobly bears. And all of the, the silent characters. Uh, oh, I love yeah. the silent Mark, characters. The silent Mark queen. the silent queen. There was a line in Richard II, which was Mark, silent queen, as in, listen up, silent queen. But it became has become a character. Mark the Silent Queen never just, says anything but judges. judges. Oh, it's so judgmental. We all <laughs> we all know Mark the Silent Queen. <laughs> Apparently, that's my rehearsal face. Is actually Mark the Silent Queen. <laughs> no, we have that. I think we have the there he is. There is this Mark. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I actually yeah. I've actually discovered over lockdown how inexpressive my face is because you're doing so many Zoom calls and things. And I'm like every time I think I'm actually reacting to something, I realise that. I've just got Mark the Silent Queen face. That's why actors think I constantly hate their work. It's I don't. I just don't have a very expressive face. They are. And uh, old Nadar. I love old Nadar. Oh, oh, Nadar. From Midsummer Night's Dream. Nadar. Where randomly in one scene, they describe Helena, Helena, who we've met for the whole play. Helena. Old Nadar's Helena. It's like... Who's old Nadar? Mm. Why are we bringing him into I don't see our father, but why? And who was it in who was it in Comedy of Errors? It was Duke Menafon. Duke yes. Menafon! Where who, um, Nikki and I, who well, Nikki and I were playing the sisters. We were acting and, our hearts out in that show. And so that hard. The, and that, that, is that think, what the word is? Acting. <laughs> acting so we hard. Acting so Perhaps hard. Overacting we may Never. have been accused of, but Never. every time Duke Menafon was mentioned, Nikki and I do a little fist pump. Still to this and day. And we still to this day. It's only mentioned once and again out of yeah. nowhere. It's these Duke, silent characters again, as if you're meant to know who they we are. We loved Duke Menafon. He was amazing. It was one of the Antipholi <laughs> Antipholis of Ephesus had spent some time with Duke Menafon and he just like in the last <laughs> act he just suddenly gets mentioned and it's as if everyone in CH has to go, Oh yeah, I know that. Yeah, who I'm... is he? <laughs> they are they're clearly someone beloved of Adriana. Beloved, <laughs> deeply beloved. Yeah. yeah, no, I think we all have to it has to be fun and it has to be there has to be some the release, I think, of, of being able to laugh at yourselves because it's really tense and it's really tricky. It's tiring, um, you're juggling a lot of things, not least the weather. Um so yeah, if you know that your working day is is fun, even though the material is difficult, that just makes such a difference. Where do you guys stand on rehearsals? The on side the of the stage. <laughs> <laughs> integral, absolutely integral. <laughs> on the stage. Uh, <laughs> where do you guys stand between uh, the balance between talking and doing? in rehearsals which do you personally prefer do you do you prefer sitting around and and kind of having a fair amount of table chat to make sure everyone's on the same page or do you prefer to just get up and do it i think you've got to there's got to be some table chat just to make sure you're all in the same world and you're talking about the same play there are times when i think that i <clears throat> i've sat around a table for far too long <laughs> during some rehearsal processes and i'm just there's just no point. There's just no. I don't. I don't think because there's only so much you can say. Just get up and do it. It's a practical thing, isn't it? That you have to, you have to practice yeah. it. You have to be up and doing it. Yeah. And I, I think sometimes you can get into that headspace of wanting to stay stay around the table and stay. Oh, sat yeah, there. there's nothing more terrifying than the moment of having to get, get up. Like you and I both say, Jen, as directors, we'll hold off that moment for as long as possible. It's why it's why the first day of rehearsals there'll always be a read through of the script, but the very first day of rehearsals will generally choreograph a dance routine or fix a fight scene something that we don't have to direct and something that doesn't require much acting so it's like let's ease ourselves into it but i'm always blown away i mean honestly day two you'll walk into the space and the stools have been marked out the positions because the stage isn't quite built yet 
for the first few days of week one of rehearsals. And it always blows me away when I walk up that lawn that we're already up on our feet mm. on day two. And it might just be, let's just work out entrances. Let's just, how, how do we all come into this world? Or if there's a sort of montage thing that you guys are trying to plan. But yeah, it's, it's that table time is so important on day one. And I think everybody needs that after a read-through just to kind of go, oh, that was quite a tense thing we just did with the read-through or exciting or funny or whatever it was. And then to sit and talk about costumes and design and then have a chat. And it's a nice easing you in. But from day two, you're up on your feet. And that's, I was, I'm always sort of taken aback by that. But to think about your question, I noticed last year, in Hamlet, you working in a very different way to how you would normally, insofar as, and I think it was because we had an actual table on the stage. Yes. So <laughs> the set was we kept table. on coming back to table talk. We kept, every time we stopped, Gordon would come up on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> Do a wee bit of a head act. And, as, as, uh, as is his want. Jeez, <laughs> I won't. And, and we would essentially stop and just gather around the table and then just discuss that moment and then he would go away again and we would, play it out and then he'd be back back up and it was really different way of you working but I think it was because we had an actual table on the stage and it just it felt like we all just gravitated towards it to discuss a moment so that was the first time that I noticed that type of work carrying on throughout the process and also I think for me with Hamlet because because the emotional pitch is quite high for a lot of scenes in Hamlet to kind of stop after six lines and fix something and then go Right, go back in at the emotional pitch. It wasn't so... If we were rehearsing something like the scene between Hamlet and Ophelia, I would kind of want you and Steph just to have a go at it. Yeah. Get from start to finish of it. Sit down, talk about what worked or what didn't, and then try it again. Because it felt like... It, it, it felt wrong to step into the middle of that scene. It wasn't going to get... What you guys had to understand was the emotional sweep from Running start through, to end yeah. of it. So I think that's where that kind of difference came up. Plus, mm-hmm. yeah, I like to sit down and there was a really nice table in chair. <laughs> <laughs> table and chair and it was oh, shaded. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was actually. That was it. It was It was also one of the only shady areas because mm. we actually had some nice but weather. generally, I don't like stopping the action to chat too much. It, you kind of... Again, you're aware of... I'm only really going to figure this out if we're up and doing it yeah. and I'll know if it feels wrong or if I'm doing something wrong, Jen and Gordon will tell me to go and do it over there instead. Yeah. <laughs> They'll keep me right, but I feel like you have to be up on your feet doing and things. Because there's only so much of that chat that is actually going to make the performance mm. better. Yeah, You know, you can you can work out backstories and, and you can study, <laughs> I don't know, anything that might be relevant to the play if you from an academical point of view. Yeah. But if that can't feed into the story that the audience is going to take away, then what's the point? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can be very guilty of... I love to fill out backstory and I love to kind of flesh out the world. And I can be really guilty of actually getting trapped into spending... You suddenly realise two hours have gone past and you're still discussing how Phoebe ended up living in the Forest of Arden. <laughs> they are, and none of that... You're right. Absolutely none of that ends up coming through. There's a good balance that you can get whereby then the actor playing yeah. Phoebe oh, understands, yeah. you know, who she is. But I, it's and it, it's important for, so for like a Benedict and Beatrice to have an understanding of what happened yeah. in yeah. the past. What is yeah, the so, you don't get, yeah. so you don't get three weeks into the rehearsal period and everybody realises, oh, you thought that you happened did. between us. So I thought that happened. <laughs> yeah, we haven't had that, but... There is something in the way that Gordon and I work that I thought I could check in, which is that I believe that Gordon and I still work the same way as in we work chronologically through the play. So on day one, I will start at the top of the play and we will work our way 
through the whole thing once, whereas I think some other directors will kind of mix and match different scenes at different times. I always find I need to work my way through the whole play once to get a sense of what the journey is, and then we'll do a stumble run, which is where we go through the whole play, you know, as messy as it is, wherever just to, it see, is, wherever it is, it is. to see what the journey is. I wanted to ask how you guys find that as a process. Yeah, it seems the obvious way to do things. I think it would be really hard for us to do things out of order because there's also the the stage business that we're always aware of. Like we're aware that if we're coming off that side, we have to walk around and come back in. And so if you're doing things in order, you're also slowly building in your mm. mind what your your, your, journey, your, your physical, physical journey is going to be yeah, yeah exactly and where have I left that costume because I think if we were to jump around in order too much you'd kind of lose track of where those sorts of things are um so it just makes sense to do it that way I mean sometimes we've, we've jumped and worked on a monologue and then come back yeah in. or I think but especially when we get often. to rehearsing the second <laughs> show of the season yeah when people are uh, rehearsing all day and performing in the evening if you can kind Give of group rehearsals work. a little bit so rather than having somebody come in at 10 a.m to rehearse a scene and then come back at four o'clock to rehearse another scene you know if you can go right you don't need to come in till three o'clock that all depends on what kind of play it is mm. if you're doing something like the last roles that you did Rob Richard III Nick Hamlet that character is driving the action for the whole play even in inactivity as Hamlet does and you can you have to rehearse chronologically for that character but if you're doing something like As You Like It which we did last year where there's groups of characters and what happens in between their scenes doesn't really you just pick up their story wherever you can kind of group it a little bit more yeah yeah absolutely because that helps you know Put your journey together that you can go well, this is my world then these are the these are the people that i interact with um but i get so i'm so used to the bard rehearsal process now like week one always feels like it's building the skeleton yeah it, that it's just very much let's just let's just work out where you're standing and and what you what you're talking about great move on and then when you come at it for the second pass then you you start to flesh it out that's when you can start really making choices or trying things out seeing what works and what doesn't. And then by the time you're into stagger-throughs and runs, it's just go, 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 go. And you can make those choices constantly. Gosh, it's so quick when you put it like that. <laughs> it's so fast. I have no idea how any of you guys manage it. I mean, we're used to it. I mean, you know, but you're all used to it. But like, we have spent nearly 20 years for me, more than 10 years for Jen as a director with the company. We spent that time working out how to maximise a three-week rehearsal period. And I guess there must be a certain level of, trust of kind of going in that third week when you have the meltdown and go I have no idea what I'm doing trusting that it's it will come together I'm gonna have to hold off and hope hope trust a bit of both the scariest one has to be measure for measure in that respect because that was that was the show where we genuinely, because we had a, a essentially a last minute cast change because somebody was unwell. Um, yeah, we we had just over a week to really build the show, and that that was that was that was when the trust of fellow cast members became absolutely key. And just kind of go, we'll get it, we'll, we'll be fine. It was scary, scary, scary. But yeah, we just we were, we were supporting each other in the choices that we were making, knowing that we kind of had to make all different, all new ones. Because yes, because we had rehearsed really for two wasn't... weeks with one actor playing yeah. Angela. They unfortunately uh, <laughs> became ill and had to withdraw from the production. So we replaced uh, and then had a week really before opening. Yeah. yeah, gosh. It's strange because I, as a director, although it felt under time pressure, it never felt 
terrifying. Like, you guys must have been doing such a good job at hiding your terror. We definitely were, because we were absolutely bricking it. And I remember, we really were. <laughs> I remember speaking to, it would have been Kirk, me, Adam, and Ez. Esme, yeah. Yeah, I remember just people going, we're not going to, we're not, not going to get, we still had scripts right up into our dress in our hands. And Gosh, yes. Yeah. Oh my, You yeah. just blocked it out, because it was just dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> well, also because the show went so well. It was one of the best shows, like, the four of us, it felt magical insofar as we just pulled together and we pulled out the bag and it was a brilliant show. But that's, it was I think one of the most stressful weeks ever. I think that's a good way of segueing nice, in nice. to asking you um, maybe to tell us about one or two of your favourite shows that you've ever done. Bar. Particularly for kind of for the process, reason. particularly yeah, for, for the, the kind of your favorite working processes, on it. Your favourite rehearsal processes. Um, Do you know, they all, they all feel so far away. I'm trying to think. <laughs> not to just think of. I, I have, I guess, there was a moment last year. Um, I was talking about this with someone the other day. So we were in Hamlet rehearsals and we were getting ready to do the very first time we were doing the To Be or Not To Be in in the space and I was really nervous about it and I was kind of dreading it plus it's out there in the lawn and there's people and it's just this massive big famous thing and you're just like oh god um and I was sat on the bench behind Susie's bush (laughs) 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 we've not meant you guys didn't mention Susie's bush no we didn't the uh the bush where the the deputy (laughs) stage manager a large bush (laughs) <laughs> where the deputy stage manager for the outdoor show sits. And uh, as Susie explained last week, she had only recently moved up to stage manager. So she was the deputy stage manager. So for many years, she sat in that bush. Which was uh, affectionately was... <laughs> known as Susie's bush. Yeah. And obviously actors enter via Susie's bush. <laughs> I mean, an audience member once urinated in Susie's Stop. bush. <laughs> very dare. <dirty. laughs> oh, very dare. But yeah. Moving was, on. You were sat, sat at the bench. the bench. The bench that is beyond the pathway. And I could see the stage and I could see uh, Alan and Alan and... Uh, <laughs> Just everyone called Alan. Yeah. Alan Seal and Alan yeah. and Gosh. Um, getting ready. They were, you know, doing the scene as I'm about to walk on. And I was, I was really aware that I, you know, half of my mind. And then this guy walked up and he, you could sort of see the haze of alcohol made his <laughs> lines blurry. Do you know that way? <laughs> like he was just, he definitely had several drinks and he'd been sleeping rough, clearly. And he just came to said, oh, can I sit down? And so he sat next to me on the bench. And I'm sort of talking to this guy, aware that this thing was happening on stage, that I'm just kind of half listening to my cue. And he started to talk to me about what essentially was a really rough life. And it was just the weirdest thing, because I was talking to this man, and I, I eventually said this, I'm so sorry, I'm actually at work, I need to go as I heard my cue coming up. And then I went on and did To Be or Not To Be for the first time. And it was brilliant because I wasn't thinking of the weight of the speech at all. And I was really aware that this man had been offloading something and I had had to sort of leave him, you know, and then go, I, I, I wasn't finished with this man. Um, and that, that would, where would that ever happen in any <laughs> other place? And it was a sort of strangely perfect thing that I needed in that in that moment. You know, I was worried about the the size of this moment for me, and it became about someone else. And so then I just ended up did it, doing it with a, a kind of an added bit of honesty that I had just got from this man. And yeah, that moment will always stay with me because it was a really special thing. And yeah, I, I was affected by that for the rest of the day. There was also a moment in Hamlet rehearsals where you wore a hat. <laughs> 
<laughs> which is, uh, which just is a to clarify worthy. for the podcast listeners, Gordon Barr does like to wear hats <laughs> and does like to wear bits of costume that are just lying around. Yes, but not in real life. Like, no, no, oh no. Don't just... let me into a costume store because I will put on every hat <laughs> and every I mean, like, cloak there, that's there. there is a bit of costume lying around. Yes, but in real life, I do not. No, I do no. not rock a hat. Uh, I do but not suit Robert's, a hat. Are you suited this one? Anyway, you you wore this hat and. That's how hot it was. It was super hot. Um, and it's a hat. I have a photo at home of my dad in almost exactly the same hat. And you'd worn it a few days in rehearsals. And I had kind of clocked it, but I didn't really think. Any, you know, I was like, oh, my gosh. And then I realised it was kind of relevant. And you'd come onto the stage to do the table talk. And then Alan, it was the seed where Hamlet follows the ghost into what was the sort of study. And so we were talking about that. And so we had the chat and then we went, Alan and I went backstage and we sort of waited for the cue. And as we came on stage, you'd left the hat on the table. And I clocked it and I just, I went to pieces. And I just, because it was just a bit too strange, you know, the moment of, I was about to act a moment of being able to speak to my dad for the first time since he died. And there on the table was the hat that you'd been wearing that had been reminding me of my dad the whole way through rehearsals. And so, yeah, that's another bit in rehearsals that, suddenly my process and what was happening all sort of Gosh, melded into the same moment and, and Alan was great Alan Steele was lovely because afterwards we we did the yeah, we did the scene several times uh, <laughs> <laughs> the look you just shot me there <laughs> it's called rehearsal you it do is, it over yeah, and over it you read so it we went back and he was like I was like, Alan, this is really hard. He's like, it's okay, you're doing great, you're doing great. But yeah, those sort of strangely unique things that just wouldn't necessarily happen in a conventional... More kind of controlled environment. Yeah, yeah, that's what kind of... Those those are the things that... Where directors don't wear hats. Because <laughs> <laughs> they don't need to shade from the sunshine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is something really exciting about rehearsing in public. It's terrifying, definitely. And I think new actors that are new to the company are always really shocked by it. But sometimes on a really nice day, when you just get this, an audience of... This slow people, drift of people coming yeah, over, sitting down and starting On their lunch watch. break or just wandering through the park thinking, oh, I'll just what's going on down there? I'll just go and sit and watch. And before you know it, you can be rehearsing a scene for the first time in front of yeah. a full lawn of, yeah. of spectators. And it's scary, but... It's, it's rewarding, isn't so it? So rewarding. You can kind of pull them in even when they're sort of distractedly walking past. I think those moments as well are really special when, I, I don't know if it was the much ado with Bertram and Benedict where you were just aware that the, the context of what was happening might not be, might be the first time people in the on the lawn had been seeing it. And, you know, it's a rehearsal and you want to, you feel protective of your fellow cast members and you're sort of ready to sort of, you know, to... Yeah, to I know back exactly them up or to to you're just sort of on edge and and watching them being very vulnerable on stage and aware that there are perfect strangers watching this that maybe don't appreciate that it's a rehearsal or what it is, but invariably those people sit down and watch it and really enjoy it. And it's little kids that are kind of maybe seeing things and seeing relationships on stage for the first time that they've maybe never seen, and it's. It's kind of nice to just kind of go, yeah, it, it, exposing people to stuff that they. Would maybe, yeah, see. it wouldn't have come across. It's, it's interesting yeah. that one with, with Benedict and Bertram, that was back in 2013. It was the first explicitly same-sex couple that we featured on stage. Mm. And I remember exactly that feeling of rehearsing, I think, one very sunny afternoon doing a full run of the play. Yeah, yeah. And as I believe is indicated by the text, others may disagree, but I know Jen and I both agree, Benedict and Beatrice, or Benedict and Bertram in this case, shouldn't kiss until the very end until I'll stop your mouth. It feels like the whole script is structured to prevent them from getting to that 
release. And so we built up quite this audience of all kinds of people, some of whom had that he is of the alcohol around <laughs> them, for sure. Uh, and, and I was nervous for yourself, Rob, and, and James, who was playing Benedict, to kiss publicly. Uh, and it just kind of goes to show, I don't know whether it's me that's changed, whether it's the fact that there have been a number of queer couples on our stages, whether society has changed, but I don't feel that nervousness anymore. I don't feel afraid for actors who are kissing someone of the same sex on stage anymore in that mm. public rehearsal space like I did back then. I remember getting so tense as it was coming up to that kiss. For exactly the reason you were saying, like I was worried somebody was going to have a problem with my actors and have some and, kind of go at you. And when they did. Yeah, they did. On that final run through when we had that, that final kiss. And like you say, this whole scene is building up to it. And it's so obvious it's coming, I think. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and we finally had this kiss. And let's be let's be honest, this wasn't this wasn't just any old peck on the cheek. No. <laughs> this 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 was this was a like a, a This was years of years of making, yeah. Something between Benedict <clears throat> and Bertrand. And and it went on and it was a good almighty kiss. Rightly so, rightly so. And one <laughs> one of the guys on the lawn one of the hazy guys. One of the hazy guys just totally took against it. And and I think his words were, uh, oh, no, 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 no. Not in front of the winds. Not in front of the winds. <laughs> and, and, and you know, he, he's more than entitled to his to his feelings. And that's absolutely fine. I think what it did, well, you know, I think what it did, though, actually, was remind us how important it yeah. was what we were doing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you don't get that. in. I mean, you rarely get that in any rehearsal room. To actually be faced dead on with the reason you're telling this story. Yeah. But to, to or the reason why it's so crucial. Didn't, why it's so didn't crucial. his mate, though, yes. almost instantly step in? He did. Yeah. 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 Yeah, like, yeah. And say, I'm so sorry. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, he was, he was, he shouted that out over the applause and cheers from other yeah. spectators. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it was so lovely. And yeah, I did feel vulnerable. I did feel absolutely naked i wasn't naked but not I thought, in front of the winds <laughs> not in front of the, <laughs> no, oh the winds um but at the same time it made me go we are doing we are doing the right thing we are absolutely doing the right thing and to have that experience in a rehearsal room and then be able to take that a couple of days later into a performance in front of the audience i i remember about that production the power that it had i remember when you took it to dean castle um, which is Ayrshire. in Ayrshire, just at that final moment when that happened, I watched this guy in the audience and he had, I'd, I'd been, I'd been standing at the back and watching him throughout and he was just so excited. And when that kiss happened, he just leapt to his feet and started clapping. Mm. And I thought that's, that is the power of theatre. That guy had just seen something reflected that maybe he hadn't ever seen reflected in a play before. Um, and it was really powerful. I'll, I'll always remember that. So with, Nick's kind of had the chance to say some of the stuff from Hamlet process that, that really impacted her. Have there been any specific process or any specific shows that you've worked on, Rob, that have that have been really enjoyable, rewarding, or let's add the flip side in at the same time and go, any that have been particularly challenging? Uh, well, definitely that much ado was the first time in my life that I had been able to pretty much play myself on stage and that's an opportunity that I've had with Bard throughout the years is to kind of have those moments when my life has fed into the work that <clears throat> that we're doing so there's been lots lots of little moments when I've that I've loved with Bard whether it was that much ado or as you like it or even moth in love's labors getting <laughs> to be be this little 
little Neddy Mancunian guy. That's one of my favourite moments is a scene that I was in in Love's Labours, which was the camp scene, which I think we've talked about on the podcast, which had like a tent and everything and all of us women were in these beautiful evening evening gowns and James as uh, Barone was having like a serious moment and it was all kind of thrashing out the love stuff. It had been silly, but then there was this little serious moment. And then I used to see you, Rob, walking up the hill from miles away and you were wearing a Roman gladiator skirt thing (laughs) with a shell suit top. Yeah. The the Roman stuff was the the costume for the play within the a play, play, within that, play that your characters were about and to you do. Were, you were coming to tell us to come to the play, and I'd be watching James do this like serious Barone stuff, and out of the corner of my eye, I would just see Rob totally matter of factly walking up the hill in this. Sounds it sounds like you're accusing me of upstaging. I, I mean, she said you were just walking. Just walking. <laughs> just walk. I would never. <laughs> no way would you have pulled the audience's focus to you. Up there. <laughs> But that was, but that's it. I think it was all of those little moments that there's just an absolute. You have a ball rehearsing a bard show, and getting to actually just just have fun with it. Whether it was Love's Labours or Comedy of Errors that you've talked about in the previous episodes, that was just chaos. <laughs> and um, it was just, it was a point. There was a point where it was just like, all oh, right, so everything's fair game. You can, do, yeah. you can do whatever you want in this production. <laughs> I find I find comedy of errors one of the toughest rehearsal processes actually because it is that thing when there are no rules to the world when you are able to kind of you're trying to say you can do anything here trying to work out what works and what doesn't work and trying to kind of keep everything contained and trying to to make some kind of logic mm. I remember it just it's that thing of because comedy of errors is a farce. To construct farce is actually really mechanical. Yeah, yeah. To make sure that every story you beat lands and to try and do that and then to make sure that it's still funny, that the mechanics are and I think we went backwards and forth for ages in the rehearsal process of that. And then you guys got in front of an audience and away it went. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really did. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, I love that. I think as far as difficult ones go, I think one of the hardest that I found was Macbeth in that 2016. Tough. That was yeah. that was tough. So was you were tough. both in Macbeth, Nikki, you were playing Lady Macbeth, Rob, you were playing... Everyone else. Everyone. <laughs> yeah, almost. <laughs> it was a cast of five, so uh, Kurt Beige was playing Macbeth with Nikki as Lady Macbeth. Helen Mirren was Macduff and Duncan, Emily Patry was Banco and Lady Macduff. And you literally were everyone else yeah. under the guise of this kind of spectral figure called the witch um that i think if you asked everybody in that cast or and me everyone in that company who or what the witch was we'd all give slightly different answers but Um, also i think it was the one it was one of the only shows that i'm aware that we all rather than having sort of the kind of concentrated table talk we all kind of agree on the world it felt like we all lived in a slightly different world from each other and yeah, I, yeah, I I remember finding out months afterwards that Kirk had built stuff within his character history and their their backstory that he specifically didn't tell me because he wanted it to be something that Macbeth knew that she didn't know and so yeah there was a strange yeah and they were it was, it was such slain, a strange kind concept. of from each other yeah it was such a high concept show because to kind of make this mm-hmm. five-hander version work where the witch was kind of manipulating but also responding to events and the whole thing was kind of set in a de- decaying nursery so kind of emily and alan who they were 
playing their characters, Macduff, Duncan, Banquo, like you would in a normal production. They were just, they were in a story of Macbeth. They were, they, 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 those characters were having the experience that they had. Rob, you were dropping in and out of characters. And then, as you were saying earlier with the highlighting, there were times when you were playing a character, but the essence of the witch was coming through that character. And then you and Kirk, Nicky, were kind of going through the story of Macbeth, yeah. but also having this kind of meta-narrative of this couple who'd lost their child and were in deep grief and mental yeah. anguish about that. And I think it was difficult because also we all of that, plus it was the second half of the season, so mm-hmm. you're, you're working on a slightly tighter time frame. Everybody also has another show in their head. What did I have? I had Coriolanus, didn't I? Uh, yes, you, yeah. Yeah, you've been playing Coriolanus, um, Robert, been playing Viola. Yeah, you know, we had... Our minds were, it, it was a busy season anyway. But I ended up really loving that show. I think because it felt a bit like tar. Mm. It just felt like you were clawing your way through during the well, we kind of had We, we had to, of... as best as we could, make sense of every moment. We had to make sense of every moment in the story of Macbeth. We had to make sense of every moment in the nar- the framing narrative. Mm. And for you, Rob, to kind of work out at any moment where your character was coming from. Yeah, I mean, because it got to the point where some of the characters that I was playing, we we really understood why the witch would want to become that character at that point and be part of the story. Well, the witch kept becoming the children. The witch was Fleance, the witch was Macduff's son, the witch was Malcolm. So it was constantly popping up as all the kids in the show. Um, But it was, there came points where we have to understand, like, why... Why now? Why does the witch decide to do this? It wasn't enough just to say, oh, and then the witch becomes the doctor. Yeah. Or that now the witch is the porter. That had to be, it had to have purpose. We had to understand why we were doing it. Otherwise it wouldn't have worked. And that was just mind-blowing to kind of work out all of that. It was was the most insane. Yeah. To the point where we were were still changing, we were still changing lines up until the tech. I think it was the tech that I was going home going, I've got a new chunk of lines to learn tonight and that's that would be terrifying but like you say it comes back to the trust and and actually i remember that opening night of macbeth when i was so nervous about all these lines going we had technical problems uh one of the, the sounds one of the sound machines went off and i realized that certain sound cues weren't going to come because a whole set of tracks had gone oh gosh and suddenly i just <laughs> felt at peace because I thought well I don't need to I don't, I don't I can't worry about my lines now I've got to be over the other side of the stage <laughs> and make a bang over there and then make an owl noise from that side of the stage and and it just <laughs> <laughs> and it just but it was one that but that in a strange way because I remember that I remember that really clearly I remember kind of going oh my gosh this is going to affect a whole bunch of stuff but because your character was the one who was essentially most manipulative, mm. it made sense, and you were amazing, and just yeah, stood up to the yeah. plate. I, mean, but, I remember we were that. Also, we were also slightly cursed because we were all conjuring the devil. Do you not remember that? that yes, because Susie he was whilst, not happy with us. Whilst you were doing all of this witchy Macbeth stuff out, outdoors, inside we were doing, doing Faustus, and we were literally conjuring the devil. And I remember things happened like when whenever each play would do this, the weather would change. Oh, there was. Was. We all really started to get freaked out by this because every time you Rob got to double double toil and trouble, mm. so the witch's spell, black clouds would roll in over the sky above us. And the first time you went, oh look at that, the clouds came in while you do the spell. By the fourth or fifth time, you're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had the, made them angry. And we had the whole thing where because the lost child, the, the child that 
Macbeth and Lady Macbeth had lost again. Sounds like they left it nasty. Uh, <laughs> the, the dead child was so important. So we had these kind of ghostly baby cries at various points in the show. Creepy, and then you would just start to hear babies cry. And Susie would turn around and go, real baby, fake baby. And you're like, which is it? Have we just pressed the wrong sign cue? Or is that an actual baby there? But it was just all started to get well really creepy. The, doors on the, the door on the set would open by itself? Yes. Well, isn't it a Lady Macbeth line where, I can't remember what it was, but there was a line of like, come in spirits or... Yeah. Uh, or come you spirits. Uh, no, I don't think it was that one. No, it was more it was about... Around... Yeah, there, there was more of a kind of inviting someone, literally. But it was somewhere around the the spell say with the witch yeah and but and i remember just getting to the very end of the line <laughs> and the door just going <laughs> and slowly creaking open and we were all just like let's take five uh, <laughs> that, was. that was terrifying and like the thought that you it was really creepy that show. plus said, we were right by the children's playground yeah, yeah so so often during rehearsals all you could hear was sort of the background sound of, of, of the soundscape that is children in the playground. Mm. And we're like, we're doing a play about this slightly haunted, childless family. And it was, yeah, it oh. was so creepy. But, but you'd said, Gordon, before we'd started it, that you wanted, if possible, to create mm. a horror mm-hmm. yes, in the gardens. It, because you wanted it to feel... One of the things we struggle with, with staging Macbeth in the gardens, is the fact that it relies so heavily on darkness. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly light. It only gets dark towards the end of our shows. And so what I wanted to do was, yeah, use the tropes of horror films, but the horror films that don't rely on jump shocks in the dark, the ones that are creepy and unsettling. I remember watching The Shining as research for it, and that kind of, that really kind of, yeah, that unsettling nature. And yeah, we ended up having that in real life as well. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, It was terrifying. It was really scary. So... We've almost covered this, but uh, I'm going to ask it because it's on our list of questions. <laughs> the, uh, as kind of a summing up, so what are the best and the worst things about rehearsing at Bar in the Mechanics? What do you most enjoy? What are you least enjoy? Find Or find the most challenging. The, the sort of inconsistency of the environment is sometimes a difficult thing. So, yeah, it's yeah, short so time we, frames and it's tense working hours. And we might be rehearsing the, out on the stage yeah. and then the heavens open and the rain comes down we and have we have to, to pack everything yeah. up, move to an indoor space, yeah. rehearse there, move into the Kibble Palace, into the wing of the Kibble Palace, which is a, a hot house. It's The room is affectionately, or affectionately might not be the right word, known as the sweaty plants room because mm-hmm. it is just, it's humid. Mm. And then suddenly you've got to pick up rehearsals yeah. on the same kind yeah. of And that's not trajectory. necessarily a problem, for example, like in week one or the beginning of week two, but as you get closer to the show opening, not getting a, a proper crack at the whip of just being on the stage for the full time. And there's been shows where you've not, you've not managed to, to rehearse proper entrances and exits in the space right up until you're doing your tech or your dress. And well, sometimes certain scenes, like it, yeah. there is a thing, it seems to be like there's like one scene in a play that you get to nearly the tech and you're like, God, we've never actually done that on the stage because it's rained every time. I'm, I think that happened in Macbeth. I think there were bits. Yeah. I remember maybe the Malcolm Macduff scene that we had. There was, lo- there was big chunks of it that I was like, we've never done this. I've never done this. The first time I'm doing this is <laughs> in the tech because <laughs> it always rained at that point. Yeah, yeah, it did with that show. It really did. Yeah, so for me, those that's the that's the worst thing. And it's really the, the only bad thing is that you kind of have to sometimes stop and start a rehearsal 
because you're moving, you're decamping and, and, and going somewhere else. But then there's some there's sometimes you find something else by doing that. Yeah. So it's an opportunity if you go if you're moving into the indoor space to get away from the rain, it's an opportunity then to kind of look at the intimacy of the scene mm-hmm. or to focus on the words of it rather than focusing on the performance. It's this it's But it must make it all just that little bit more tiring. That it's tiring, yeah, having to do, take that mental shift and put yourself into a different place, yeah. And the best, the the best things are, for me, have got to be the relationship with the audience that happens during rehearsals, those mm-hmm. those little magical moments that you just don't ever get. The challenges of working outdoor are also the sort of rewards of it. And obviously, we just have so much fun. We really have a lot of fun. It never feels like you're going to work. I've never, I've never had a rehearsal day where I, I was just like, oh, I've got to go to work. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. You, yeah, I'm always I'm always singing and skipping on my way into work because it's just a joy to be with the company and to be with those people and the, that material and figure out. I, I like facing the challenges of the environment. I like being met by a frisbee halfway through a speech and going, <laughs> okay, cool. Or a dog has just run through and grabbed someone's lunch from out their bag and you're like, right, okay, yeah, that's how, that happened today. Gosh, that did happen. That did happen. And not just from sitting out in the grass. The lunch was like, in, a in the backstage yeah. area. Oh, yeah, yeah. So a dog ran down, up onto the stage, into the backstage area, found the one sandwich that was nearby and away again. Yeah. It's <laughs> the sort of crazy chaos of all that is also its charm, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it's challenges that no other actors that haven't had that experience know that they can face. Do you know what I mean? We know, having had pretty much all the experiences that you can have, we know that we can handle those and you kind of grow from that experience as an actor, as a performer. And that's really exciting. It's kind of cool to know that you're not you're not going to be able to know how every single day is going to pan out. So you have to figure out who you are at the end of that day again. That's exciting, I think, for me. Or then to go and shove some food down your throat because you're, you're on stage being somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, to me, it's the people. It's always the people isn't it? The team that you have around you, whether it's the actors that we get to work with or you guys or Sam and Susie, everybody. It becomes such a family that you spend all these, a whole summer with to bless them. That's, That's what I've joy. missed the most, certainly this year. Isn't oh, yeah. It? Yeah, somebody, my sister pointed out, because I was feeling a bit low the other day, she's like, Nick, you've got to remember that normally this time of year you've you've had a good few weeks of doing the job that you love and you, you know, you're right in the thick of it and you've had a, a chance to kind of, and I was like, yeah, no, you're right, but I'm actually just mostly missing the people. The people, people. The, yeah. The life, yeah, the, yeah. The, the social aspect of it. Mm-hmm. As we record this episode, we're nearing what would have been the end of the 2019 season. So we've 2020. Been... 2020. Well, what year are we in? Where Who are knows? we? Who are we? Who even knows anymore? So we'd be gearing up for the end of season party, which is always epic. The, uh, and it always, always comes so quick, I think, the end of the season. It just before you know it, you're in that final run of final show and you're just like wow when did when did the last x amount of weeks happen how did that go so quickly <laughs> day one seems like such a long time ago being completely stuffed full with stuff that's how it goes so quickly yeah, yeah, yeah. once you get going they're not a spare moment it is it is like a big rock at the top yeah. of a hill i think you used that analogy yeah. before once, and once the it goes stone off, starts moving down the mountain we'll see you at the end mm-hmm. of the season yeah i think i'm always really aware of that the night before day one it's you're like, yeah. aware that as of tomorrow, goodbye, family. <laughs> I'll see you in August. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, it's lovely to get to talk to you for a little bit without the season this year. Hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully time will go as quickly between yeah. now and, and the this next time next year. year. Fingers crossed, everybody.
This is a difficult time for theatres and theatre companies around the world, and Barton the Botanics is no exception. We are working incredibly hard to ensure that we will be returning in 2021 for the company's 20th anniversary season. But if you'd like to support us and help us make sure that we can be there, please visit our website at www.bardinthebotanics.co.uk and donate to our crowdfunder fundraising campaign that will ensure the survival of Bard and the Botanics for years to come. You can also find us on social media. So have a look for us there. We are on Facebook, we are on Instagram and we're on Twitter. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe. Lend Us Your Ears is a Bard in the Botanics production. It is produced by Gordon Barr and Jennifer Dick and it is edited by Jennifer Dick. Our logo is by Jonathan McEnroe. Yeah, with both of you guys, you've been working with us for more than 10 years now, both of you. And I think you you are two of the, the actors that we work with who have found ways to keep that intimacy outdoors. They are, you're so experienced at it now that you can... I was, yeah, I was uh, really worried for Hamlet. I was really, like, it, it properly, probably why I read the bloody thing. <laughs> You're totally, you can totally swear. <laughs> okay. Okay. You can totally swear. Oh, thanks. For, 